everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas, like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder today. This is The Run Through. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. We're so happy to have our dear colleague Maya Singer this week, who has written an incredible story. She's a contributing writer and has been for written several cover stories. But this week she had a very special assignment. And I want you, Maya, to tell us more about it. Uh, well... I got a last-minute call on Thursday night asking me if in the ne- sometime in the next 24 hours I could fly down to Florida and interview Stormy Daniels. Last <laughs> Thursday. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was an unusual assignment for me because it's not – I'm not normally like the person who's kind of getting dispatched to do big kind of political profiles, celebrity profiles, but – Obviously, I jumped at the chance. It's sort of a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She's an icon. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think that more now that you've actually met her? I mean, now that I've met her, it's like I feel like I've encountered the woman, you know. But um, it's always always interesting. It felt like I was doing in real time this, like, process that we have, like, as a culture have been doing – um, retrospectively about people like Monica Lewinsky and Pamela Anderson, where we're sort of thinking about the actual person who was, like, behind the kind of scandal that, like, became this, like, iconic figure in society, but also disparaged and whatever. And, you know, and then just actually, like, sitting in her house, meeting right. her husband, like, you know, you realize, like, that this is just, like, a living, breathing person. So you fly, we're not going to say a specific location because she's receiving a lot of death threats. Um, it's awful. But it's somewhere in central Florida. What? Tell me about what, what her house looks like. What did she serve you? Does she, what was she wearing? Like, what does Stormy at home look like? So, I mean, it's funny because, like, I grew up in central Florida. Oh, okay. And, um... You know, she lives in a more rural part of the state than 
than I'm from. But in lots of ways, like, her house, walking into it, felt very familiar to me in a lot of respects. It's in a development. Houses are kind of suburban style, tract houses, pretty big, but they're set on, like, enough acreage that people have, you know, room to keep, like, horses and farm or do whatever. Um, but it's so still, she's a great equestrian, right? Yes, mm-hmm. she is a very serious equestrian and, you know, has her new horse in her backyard, Redemption. And oh, my God. I know the name <laughs> of it. The name of it killed me. Redemption. <laughs> Redemption. And she has very decisive taste. Um, Give us an example. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> no, just like, you know, I mean, it's not like she ordered her like decor and hit sense of style like out of the Pottery Barn catalog. I mean, she's got like blood red walls in her living room. Oh, okay. Um, Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of like occult sort of art. She's got like when she was living in New Orleans um, until recently, she got like very into the occult. But then you go into the kitchen and she's like pointing out. I mean, it was very like suburban home tour where she's sort of like, we haven't taken out these cabinets yet. So like, don't judge. (laughs) And (laughs) just like extremely normal, extremely like normal going to somebody's home where she's just sort of like, it's messy, blah, 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 blah. And um, she's wearing like a little frilly uh, navy sundress and her hair was up in a ponytail. And honestly, she might have had makeup on, but if so, it was like very minimal. And Um, what was her husband like? Was he part of your chat or not really? (laughs) He was kind of in and out. I mean, it's funny. She sort of not like introduced him to me indirectly. He was out of the house when I first arrived, literally like going buy hay for the horse. Wow. And, um, and it's funny. He's from LA and they like basically moved to Florida together right after they got married. And we were talking about the fact before, like I really even started like, you know, recording anything. We were just talking about the fact that I'd grown up in Florida, you know, and she was just like, yeah, you know, this morning, because it was really hot, as I say in peace. And um, she's like, this morning, Barrett got up and he like walks out of the bedroom. And he's like, babe, there's a problem. And she's like, oh, my God, what? You know, <laughs> she's just like super on edge. And he sort of like gestures to his outfit and he's wearing a pair of shorts and some flip-flops and like a flannel shirt with like the arms cut off. Oh, my gosh. And, he, and he's like, I'm starting to look Florida. And she's like, is that a problem? And he's like, no, the problem is I like it. And, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that was sort of like I felt like I really kind of like understood Aww. like their dynamic just from like that one anecdote. Um, and then when he finally— wow, It makes me really like him. Me too. <laughs> He was just, you know, he showed up, he introduced himself, and they kind of retreated to the other family room den area to go watch Sunday football. I mean, you know, just being a dude (laughs) on a Sunday. How do you think she's feeling about everything? Because I I feel like she went through a round of telling her side of the story, and this is round two. What what do you find – I mean, you talk about this a bit in the piece, but what do you find is different – and how she's sort of controlling her narrative. I really found it fascinating um, talking to her about the ways that she has sort of, for all the times that she told the story, like back in 2018, 2019, and since, that she's just really been going through this process of reevaluation. She really reminded me a lot of girls that I went to high school with who had, like, no money and a lot of hustle, right? Mm -hmm. And they just... They were so kind of like tough and street smart and self-reliant, but kind of like didn't 
fully, like, maybe always understand the ways that they were still incredibly, like, naive and vulnerable. Mm. And and what I got the sense of talking to her was that, like, she spent a really long time in that kind of, like, defiant, I was, I'm in control, like, of this whole situation, joking about it sort of process. And then it was just recently that she started to reckon with the concept that, like, actually maybe she didn't have a lot of agency in that right. situation. Yeah, the 90 seconds, that that really struck me. No, I mean, this was absolutely the thing that, like, struck me. It was, like, one of those things, you know, when you talk to people and you just, like, there's this moment where you kind of lock into something that they're saying and you realize, like, you're hitting, like, something very, very real mm. and that I could identify with, and I feel like a lot of women can probably identify with, who have been in ambiguous situations um, sexually where the lines are just really, really gray between, like, what's consenting and what's not consenting. And she talks about how, like, she still to this day has this memory gap of, like, 90 seconds where she can remember kind of coming out of his bathroom in the hotel room and seeing him on the bed, undressed, and it totally shocked her. And she had, like, all these thoughts that kind of raced through her mind all at once. And then there's this erasure of her memory because she cannot, no matter how hard she thinks about it, figure out how she got from the threshold of the bathroom to being underneath him in the bed. And she really, like, kind of was so granular in how she talked about it. And the thing that really struck me was just when she started, and this is in the piece, when she started talking about the shoes— because mm. she, you know, she had this thing where she was like, I was wearing a dress. The dress was like a T-shirt, whatever. But the shoes were these like gold shoes with buckles. And they were such a pain to get on and get off. Oh, wow. She wonders how she, yeah, and, how and she I, managed it. And I just, I know that I took them off and that it had to be a process because after it was over, I had to put them back on. Mm. And that I remember And I remember that feeling of just, like, wanting to get out of there. So when did I take my shoes off? Why did I take them off? Like, I don't know how to answer these questions. And I I just think about that as, like, I can identify with, like, experiences in my my own life as a woman where I've just sort of had that, like, looking back on a situation and being like, where did I go? Right. Mm -hmm. You know? And how you survive, like, how you kind of have to... I don't know what what mental things happen in your brain for you to disassociate for the time that is, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think about it as being in the situation where you kind of dissociate because you just are in a situation where you just don't feel like you have a good choice to make. Mm. Right. So you're like, all right, I don't know. I'm just going to go. I'm going to take whatever feels like. I mean, my assumption is she probably did what many people would do, which is you take the easiest mm-hmm. route, which is just to, like, go along with it, let the powerful person who's sort of standing in your way and is also offering you all of these opportunities that sound really good to you, you're just like, okay, whatever. It's, like, not a big deal. But that's not a real choice, so you just you, you alienate from it and disappear. What I thought was really interesting in your piece, Maya, was when you talk about the, the, the complicated way she grappled with the way the media depicted her and this sort of liberal feminist cry of like, call her Stephanie Clifford. She's a woman, not a porn star. And that she sort of said, well, no, I'm a woman and I'm a porn star and my name is Stormy Daniels. How did you 
figure out how to navigate that yourself? And also, how did she talk to you about that now a few years later? I mean, what's interesting to me about Stormy Daniels is, like, that she just doesn't fit into any of the sort of political boxes that we like to think, like, the little ice cube tray of, like, this goes here and this goes here. I mean, she is a person who you know, is still a registered Republican. She rides horses. She, you know, but she's also, like, she is very libertarian in, like, a lot of ways and, you know, just wanting kind of to be very free to, like, live her own life. And the way that she thinks about working in the porn industry would be familiar to people who go to, like, DSA meetings in Brooklyn and, like, Mm -hmm. you know, sex work is work. But I don't think that, like, Stormy would enjoy being at those meetings. No. DSA is <laughs> Democratic Socialists of America. Yes. And P.S. I'm not sure many people actually enjoy being in those meetings, present company <laughs> included. <laughs> They're often very tiresome. I love the image of Stormy just, like, busting through the doors. <laughs> is she still a working porn actress or is she retired? No, I mean, it depends on how you define it. I mean, she's definitely, like, very oriented towards writing and directing. Yeah, oh, yeah she, she mentioned— What do you think that she means by writing and directing a project? Do, is it a— what, what, she na- want, what is the nature of it? She wants to write and direct a feature film. She's going out of town to— um, try to get some money to make what in Hollywood is known as like a proof of concept short. And then they're hoping like off the back of that, that they can then, you know, get somebody to fund like the full feature. But this is not going to be an adult film. This is just right. a mainstream wow, film. Wow, interesting. Do you think you and Stormy are going to stay in touch? I don't know. I mean, I think that... Have you heard from her? We had changed, you know, we, tra- we traded piece, texts yeah. like afterwards. And, you know, I thanked her for like opening her home to me and... She was like, you know, feel free to be in touch. If Has you have she any been in questions. touch since, since the piece? No. That's no news is good news. I think it means. I I agree. No I mean, news I find no news. one ever reaches out after a story. People very rare. Very rare. You're right. I will. You're right. Very I, rare. It's only happened to me like a handful of times. I will say that I did get a very nice bouquet of flowers and a note from Zendaya when I did my cover See? story on oh, her. Oh, that's class nice. act. Class act. Not many people do that. No. Let me just say. No. <laughs> well, speaking of Zendaya, yes. I think we wanted to segue yep. to another topic that Choma and I had been chatting about this week, which was, seemed like everyone on my Instagram was in Mumbai last week. Yeah. And there were two big events. Uh, Dior had their pre-fall show uh, at the Gateway to India, the enormous arch uh, in Mumbai on the waterfront. They had 850 guests. I mean, 850, that's a that's lot huge. of people to have for your show. That's mm-hmm. big. And then there's the this opening of this huge new cultural and arts center funded by Mukesh Ambani, who is the richest man in Asia. He has a, a bouquet of companies, but uh, from... Petrochemical clothing to telecommunications to just a, a whole array. And this has really been spearheaded by his daughter, uh, Isha Ambani. And it's opened with a fashion exhibition on the fashion of India that had been curated by Hamish Bowles and Patrick Kinmouth. And they really pulled out all the stops. I mean, it was incredible to see just unfurl on my Instagram. Oh my god! <laughs> they, I just, can't, just the, the the amount of money that must have been spent on this opening just it's like a pang in my stomach. But that's fine. Um, <laughs> like handle the pain. <laughs> 
But they paid, I believe, or invited um, a lot of Hollywood, Bollywood, fashion Mm -hmm. insiders. And what was striking to me just on my Sunday morning scroll on my Instagram was that everyone seemed to be really embracing Indian fashion. Mm. And I actually, you know, from my middle-aged white lady perspective, I was like, oh, everyone looks so pretty. But then I was like, huh. Is there any – should we be thinking about this? We invited <laughs> our friend and our colleague, Christian Allaire, to chat with us about this, senior fashion and life and style writer at Vogue. Hello. Yeah, I mean, Christian, First. what are your initial thoughts? Because we <clears throat> had a conversation earlier today and you're actually – Working mm. on it. Well, it's a tricky thing, right? Because you obviously, as a guest, want to pay homage to the event you're attending. But when it's a culture that's not your own, it can be very tricky to wear cultural clothing. <laughs> um, so I think Zendaya, actually, if we're going to pick yeah. some, someone who did it right, did it the best way possible. She partnered with an Indian designer. His name's Rahul Mishra. Mm-hmm. Um, she's worn him before in 2020. And so she obviously picked someone who's of that culture, who can speak to the design elements, who knows what Indian fashion is. And she really just wanted to spotlight his work and she kind of let him shine. And I believe she even walked the red carpet with him. So took it one step further. So yeah. I just thought that was a really classy way to do it. I think Michelle Obama was kind of sort of set the standard for that idea of like fashion diplomacy where where you when you visit somewhere you kind of pay homage in some way and she always kind of she never really missed. I think she always did it correctly, but it is really tricky territory and I think the goalposts are continually moving. Mm. When I think about how we was we were talking about this maybe a decade ago would have been a completely different conversation. I mean, when you look when you look at different cultural icons, you think of the kind of pieces that Gwen Stefani or, you know, the Bindi and mm. Saris that were incorporated. And when you think of uh, Ray of Light era Madonna, wasn't she wearing like Saris? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think it oh, was, call. you know, I think this is something we talk about often and you, you're, you're in the process of collecting a lot of culturally inappropriate pieces because mm-hmm. you feel that they should be owned by people of that culture. And, you know, mm. I do the same. I have a, a, a blackamoor ring here that's from the 1800s. And, mm. I, you know, I feel strongly that I should own this, mm-hmm. you know, and it shouldn't be in the hands of someone who would misappropriate it. Choma, can you explain to us what blackamoor rings are that you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, they're basically, I mean, the one I'm wearing now is a cameo ring. So it is a depiction of a, of a black woman uh, on a cameo. Um, so I love cameo rings. But obviously seeing yourself is so... This just makes it extra special. And I have another one that's has like tiny diamonds around it. And this one is actually engraved with a woman's name who I'm sure is not black, Elizabeth. Hmm. Um, and it's like, it, it's I've worn it so much that the, the, the date has worn off. But I think it was 1887. Wow. I wear it all the time and it has a lot of meaning for me. Um, yeah. Has anyone ever commented on it? Yeah, Rihanna. <laughs> oh my God, casual. Yeah. People have commented. I mean, if you, I think she also has a, a attraction to cameos. I think she created them for her Fenty line that she did with LBMH. Um, but yeah, I mean, the one I'm wearing, I wouldn't say is a problematic depiction. There are some in which women are women and men are depicted as servants. I don't buy those pieces. I don't. I have a piece actually at home that was a that does have that. That was one I collect, but I don't wear. 
you know, I'm from an indigenous background, not an Indian background, but um, I, you know, the market is flooded with so many inappropriate things that designers have obviously drawn from indigenous heritage, but then completely made it their own without credit. And so the vintage market is flooded with these things. I tell you, there's endless amounts. And so I always see them and I'm like, who's going to buy this? And will they know that it's insanely racist what they're buying? So I'm like, I just kind of just started collecting for fun. I was like, well, I guess I'll buy it. You know, because I see these things sitting there and it's kind of become a hobby. And I don't even know what my intention is with these pieces. I don't really have a goal. I just don't want someone to wear them who shouldn't be. And so maybe it's like an art gallery down the line or I don't know. But it's just I feel like the sense of responsibility to take these garments off the market. (laughs) Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's also a question of, I mean, in terms of making clothing as opposed to just wearing clothing like Gigi and Zendaya. How does Dior do it right? How does Dior do this fashion show in India celebrating Mm -hmm. Indian culture and fashion, but also being a French heritage brand? It's a very delicate balance. I mean, I think what happened with Dior, I think uh, Maria Grazia had been having conversations and had been using embroideries. The designer of Dior. My bad, sorry. (laughs) Not that everyone knows. (laughs) Um, I think she had had established a relationship with a with a community of embroiderers and actually embroidery in India is is usually something that men do and I think she'd helped support a a female only um, embroidery collective. Mm -hmm. So it was something that was she'd already I think there's a conversation that she'd already started over the years and so I think you see that there's intention you see that there's a commitment to supporting beyond just coming in in a whirlwind and leaving right because you know that just feels it just feels irresponsible Um, and I think you know there are various ways in the collection to use certain colors I mean you can pick apart and you can unpack all of it I was reading someone was writing about this and saying that the more you know about a culture and the more you endeavor to educate yourself about whatever the culture is, the the art that you're working with, the more you know, the better off you're going to be doing this. So mm-hmm. it's in a way, it's a great encouragement for people to learn as much as they can about other cultures and about other places that are not their own. Yeah, I think the house made a really like deliberate decision to do that too. I I interviewed Frida Pinto, who was a guest at the Dior show, and she was telling me how Dior invited some of the guests to the atelier where um, I think it's called Shanakia Atelier, where Dior worked with art, these artists to make the collection, like Indian artists, and they invited their guests to come visit with them, see how certain pieces were made, and I thought that was a really kind of classy touch to do yeah. before the show. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, thank you guys. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, so fun. So excited to have you back from Stormy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the run through will be back in just a moment. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? 
Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills, or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes, and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is The Run Through. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. There's a new book out this week called Euphoria Fashion, and it's by stylist and costume designer Heidi Bivens. Yeah, and I've been kind of devouring it. It's really cool if you're, if you're into the show, which I am. You're a I real am. Euphoria stan. I'm a real Euphoria stan. And it's just the way it's done is kind of unconventional. Yeah, it's fun. And yeah, you get all these wonderful kind of anecdotes from the from the show that you might not have known about specific pieces. And there's, so there's lots of things to nerd out about. The looks really became characters in themselves. They exactly. inspired a lot of memes, a lot of internet discussion. Exactly. Um, you know, the show is about teenage excess, drug use, and the style really crystallizes a lot of uh, what's going on there. It does. And fun fact... Um, Heidi used to work at Vogue as a sitting editor it's for a true. decade. It's true. When I edited the Flash section, she did quite a few yep. stories for me. She does styling for Chanel. She's done, you know, she's done projects for WWD, Paper Magazine. We talked to her just before the release of the book. Welcome, Heidi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. And I'm so excited to be here. Will you just introduce yourself to us? Yes. My name is Heidi Bivens, and I'm a stylist and a costume designer, and most recently producer, and I've started directing. Oh, wow. And I used to be a sittings editor for Bose yeah. for many years. Someone reminded me of that yeah, for, this morning. For many years, um, over 10 years. Do you remember, like, your favorite Vogue shoot? I remember doing some first shoots for people, like Alex Wang's first shoot really? for the magazine. Oh, yeah. funny. Excellent. And... Now you have a book. You're also an author. Yeah, the book's amazing. <laughs> I love you. it. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, the book's exciting for me because I can't remember having seen a book that explores costume designers' process in this way. Mm. Yeah. So the book is called Euphoria Fashion. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty direct title. <laughs> yes, they wanted to call it Euphoria Fashion, the Art of Costume Design, and I asked them to... No, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, just euphoria fashion. That's, yeah. that's enough. And how long has this been in the making? Uh, we worked on it for a year. Okay. A good year. Yeah. It was a, a lengthy process. And, uh, you know, my first book, so it was mm -hmm. a learning curve. Uh, we also had other writers contribute. I know. Our very own Jose Criales Unzueta yes, yes. wrote an amazing essay on camp and queerness mm -hmm. and euphoria. Yes. Did you have any sense 
when you were sort of presented the project mm. that it would become such a cult no. thing? No, not at all. Um, I really didn't have that kind of foresight. I've told a story before about how when I first got the pilot script, sending it to Gen Z friends or even millennial friends because I'm X. Um, to ask them, like, is this cool? Like, should I should I do this? <laughs> and all of them said, yes, absolutely. And and I'm glad I did. I mean, I was excited to try TV because there's this. Is that you know, your first TV? Yeah, that was my first TV gig. And you know, I'm used to you know working on films where I get like five weeks, maybe six weeks prep, and then we're shooting for like maybe six weeks or so, not like these huge, like big budget Marvel movies or anything like that, smaller scale films. So I usually have such a truncated time to design the character from the time I'm hired, you know, design the characters, do the fittings, and then they're establishing, you know, on on camera. And then, then that's it. There's nothing I can do beyond that. But with television, you have this long run. Euphoria shoots like eight months. And you get to know the characters better, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's a second season and now a third season. So yeah, there's this opportunity to really develop the characters in a different way than I would with shorter format project. Heidi, I'm always curious what the collaboration process is like with the actor. Um, I love that in the book, I think it's Ariane Phillips who says that uh, the costume designer is the only member of the crew who sees the actor in their underwear. Um, so obviously it depends on the person, but how does that relationship and collaboration shift from person to person? The costume fittings are usually the first place the actors come after, you know, of course they've met with the director and they've met the producers. They've read the script, obviously, but a lot of times, depending on how busy the actor is or how invested they are in helping develop or create the character, sometimes they come into the fitting and, you know, unless there's some anecdotal Thing about their character written into the script, they don't have any idea of the backstory, and I've cre- had to create the backstory regardless of if it's really? there or not. Yeah, to be able to choose the costumes and and believe it for it to feel authentic for me. What if you mm-hmm. and Zendaya arrive and mm-hmm. she has a totally different backstory for Rue than you did? Mm-hmm. Then I go with her backstory okay. unless you know she wants to talk about it, and then it becomes like a sort of mashup of our ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, it's usually like a personality type. There's, um, I find actors who just want to be told what to wear and they want to let you do your job. And then there's, there's others who really enjoy the process of collaborating with costumes and they're full of ideas. Yeah, I heard that Sydney Sweeney like does a, a scrapbook for every character. Did you? Um, I didn't get a scrapbook from Sydney for Euphoria, uh, okay. but she but she definitely was extremely inf- informative. So she would come with ideas that I hadn't thought of that made me look way better. As <laughs> get what's an example of that? Yeah, um, I tell a story in the book about a scene that was shot for the second season. It was one of the last episodes. It's when Cassie walks down the hallway with Nate. And uh, I say it kind of represents her absolution. Uh, it's um, then you've got Kat and Maddie standing by the lockers, like saying she fits the part. So she's walking down the hallway with Nate and she it, it, there's something about her that's supposed to not look completely Right. So I had a, a costume picked out, which was more tame than the one that we ended up going with. And Sydney called me 
uh, when, you know, they were getting ready to shoot and, and said, like, I have another idea and pitched me an idea. And mm-hmm. in that way— What like, was the final outfit? It's like a hot pink mohair oh, wow. sort of crop it. top and then, uh, and then a, a pink skirt. And then she's got, like, a little Balenciaga back. I mean, <laughs> the way that her character developed mm-hmm. in season two, it was so— like it was so in tandem with her Her outfits told the story you almost knew her state of mind Mm -hmm. by looking at what she was wearing because she was completely unraveling if I didn't know that you styled the show I would imagine someone with a with a very strong fashion background style the show because you know you had designers that were so young and up and coming I know you put Lou Dallas like Hunter or Lou Dallas in it and Mm -hmm. Raphael Hanley. Yes, Raphael Hanley, young designer who was part of the CVFF, which is the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. Very New York, very, I mean, very independent, very young. Mm -hmm. So there was this instant recognition of all these indie designers and even, I just think there was more fashion-forward looks on the show. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't normally see, like, a Balenciaga bag in all the latest thing, Mm -hmm. you know. Now you will. Yeah. (laughs) And I know that you wanted the character i mean what were what was the decision making behind it because i know there was also mm-hmm. some things where you didn't want you wanted the characters to be able to it would be something they would be able to buy mm-hmm. or. that definitely was um first season i i was more method about it where mm-hmm. i wanted to make sure that i wasn't pulling the audience out of the story where right. they were like being able to call out what they knew what everything like was this mew mew thing yes, was, right. exactly um i was trying to stump people actually and i was using a lot of vintage and i was pulling from costume houses and right. there's massive costume houses in los angeles for every studio universal warner brothers abc like they all have these gigantic they're amazing gigantic costume houses and it just so happened that like the 90s section and definitely like the early 2000s section hadn't been picked over a lot because it was like right before mm. it hit and I knew it was coming because it's all cyclical, right? And there weren't any projects shooting at the time for those decades hmm. or for those time periods. So um, I just got really lucky and like it was like a smorgasbord of, <laughs> of fashion that, you know, was, uh, was at, my, at, my, at my fingertips. So, you know, when it came time to to shoot the show, I knew I had an opportunity to put fashion on television that wouldn't normally be seen Mm. so I was like looking for like things that felt nostalgic to me but then also like smaller brands like people who are making clothes in their bedrooms like all over Mm. but then also you know supporting the big brands Instagram okay yeah yeah the deep dive I guess Uh like scroll forever and then you just DM people and be like I want this for euphoria people must think they're being punked first season I got a great response from designers because Zendaya was attached you know obviously from the beginning and you know she was a known actress but a lot of the other cast members it was like their first big breakout thing Mm -hmm. so it you know it took a minute but then by second season it was pretty easy in the book, you talk about how Zendaya came in the first for a fitting wearing the converse that she wore, the Chuck Taylors mm-hmm. from Spider-Man. Like how much of an actor's personal style or personal clothes bleed into their character? Yeah. When I first met Zendaya, she was wearing just like a white tank top and jean. And I wasn't that familiar with her red carpet style at the time, which was probably a good thing that I kind of, you know, for mm-hmm. me, she was like kind of a blank slate in that way. I, I knew pretty quickly 
that, um, especially because Rue is is loosely inspired by Sam Levinson's own story. Mm-hmm. I Sam Levinson is the creator, mm-hmm, the, the show. writer, showrunner, creator, director, mm-hmm. the, or everything. But yeah, I, I came up with style rules for Rue pretty quickly. Okay, um, I, what's I an example of what are style rules? Um, like you know, it's like what we do in our life. Like oh, I only wear black, or um, I never wear V neck, or uh, you know, like I like would never wear a skirt above this length, or whatever. Whatever it is, okay. you know, we all have these sort of like rules for ourselves that we follow. Uh, Do you write those down for each character? Yeah, I usually create like a what I'd call like a Bible for our, our costume department okay. so that anyone coming in to like shop for the show or anyone I'm hiring to be part of the crew would have a window into like what I'm what I'm imagining. But like for Rue, for example, like I knew she would like never wear a skirt. Mm. We're never going to see her in heels. <laughs> And then with the Converse, there were other shoes that we used for a season, but then those just, we just kept going back to those. And then at one point, I think we just decided these are just going to be like the shoe. You know, that was something Zendaya brought to the character. Also the rings Mm. that Rue wears. Are Zendaya's personal rings. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. When is Euphoria season three filming? Start shooting in June. So prep in May. So very, very soon. And where? Um, In Los Angeles. Okay. And does, like, Sam Levinson ever give you feedback or, like, are you sort of getting incoming Mm -hmm. constructive criticism from other Mm -hmm. members of the creative team? Sam is a joy to work with. He enables me to be my best, I say, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't micromanage. Okay. So, you know, if he has a distinct idea about something and I get get it wrong, he's going to let me know. But, um, you know, he's, like, even written into scripts where there would be some description of costume. He'll say, let Heidi do her thing. So, (laughs) you know, he really does give me so much creative license, which I'm extremely thankful for and always will be. Uh, But there, you know, there has been times where, you know, I've gotten things I would say wrong. Um, What's an example of that? There was one time um, during the Jewel special episode where – hair and makeup departments and myself thought that Jules was like coming back from going out to like a nightclub or something. I don't know. We just, that's how we read into it. And I do this thing where I create a deck every week of the costumes that are coming up and I circulate it so that everyone can see what I Mm. planned. And then, yeah, like Sam was like, no, she just needs to be like in like her underwear with like no hair or makeup done or something. And we were like, oh, okay. Like we just like, it was all moving so fast. It's so interesting because I feel like all of the characters now, uh, they're off screen lives. They've become fashion icons. I think about Hunter Schaefer and Hunter was a model before she was an, was an actor. What was it like working with her being a model before? Did she have a lot of opinions about what she wanted to wear? Did she have a... I'm quite sort of curious. Yeah, I mean, Hunter's the best. She was so respectful in the beginning and, I mean, always has been. But from the beginning, I think because she was coming in and that was like her, probably her first real acting Mm. gig of that level, um, she, you know, really like leaned on me to help define the character. Uh, But at the same time, because she's such a creative in her own right and has like uh, amazing ideas, she did mood board for me. Oh, wow. I still have mm. her mood boards. I shared them with uh, the students at Polymoda. When, oh, what was when on I them? Did it. Um, there's uh, a lot of anime references. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, Shout and out to Sailor Moon. 
Yes, definitely. She, I mean, I think Hunter for sure grew up on anime and still is is a big lover of all of that. So um, manga and anime mm-hmm. and referencing that. I want to know if you have any thrifting secrets because oh, yes. so much of Euphoria clothes are thrifted. Yeah, online. I mean, really. Oh, really? It's like that's, mm. you know, where I'll Depop find... Depop or eBay or... Yeah, all, all of them. Okay. All of them. I think the cutest is when, like, I've bought an item from a vendor, like, on eBay or Depop, and they'll figure out that I've put it on the show. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh or, or, or that, uh, like, you know, that I bought it for the show. Yeah. And, you know, because sometimes I'll just to get them to expedite shipping, I'll have to say, like, I need this for a fitting for, you know, an actor. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't tell them, like, what it's for. But there's been a couple occasions where they've figured it out and then, like, handwritten me letters and Aww. then, like, you know. And, and there was one um, girl uh, in Ireland who I bought a Blue Marine cardigan <laughs> for who, and I put it on Alexa to me as Maddie. So and perfect. I knew <laughs> I had met that girl before she had um i had met her when she lived in the states like and she so that we irish actually, yes no way yes and so we reconnected in that way and then you know i've had um other vendors like once they figure it out say like you know carte blanche like you can we'll send you anything everything you know so it's it's fun to make those those connections with people and then there's you know there's vendors like aralda vintage yes Bren. i love aralda brand at aralda does an amazing job yeah never heard of him um, in la okay. in la but where do you like to shop for yourself i don't shop a lot. Really? I have a closet full of clothes. So mm. I'm really trying to be sustainable in that way mm. where I'm like going shopping in my closet. Mm. And um, I will buy a couple new things per season and wear them into the ground. But I think, you know, long gone are the days where I feel like I need a different outfit right. for 30 days for a month. And then <laughs> so I know. It's, like, it's so like, liberating to yeah. be able to be like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Heidi, thank you so much yeah, for so much. making a big great. commute. Thanks. Well, yeah, we I'm like so excited it. to be here back in the building. Yeah. And lovely to talk with you. And you give great radio voice. Oh, thank oh, you thanks. so much. <laughs> we love to hear it. So do you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Get balanced or thrive trying. My name is Les and I'm the host of Balanced Black Girl, a podcast dedicated to helping you feel your best. Join me for casual conversations about what it means to live a well-rounded life. I cover everything from how to make friends as an adult to how to create a workout routine that works for you to how to practice better financial wellness. Tune in for approachable conversations with wellness thought leaders and inspiring guests, as well as intimate solo chats with me for relatable advice. Follow wherever you get your podcasts and look out for new episodes every Tuesday. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate minority leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. 
And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Choma, before we go, remember when I visited Dita Blair at her apartment? I do. It sounded epic. Ugh. Dita Blair is a fashion icon and a legendary hostess and philanthropist, and she's known for her sort of ice-white, Cruella-esque sculptural bouffant. <laughs> she is one of the great muses of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. She's an epic couture collector for the last half century, and she actually had a book that came out a few months ago about her life and her fundraising efforts. She is 91. The book is called Dita Blair, Food, Flowers, and Fantasy. It's sort of a very creative and fun approach to a coffee table book on every sort of delightful thing about living a glamorous life. It's I, I'm a terrible host. I think I could use this book. Yes. Wait. I mean, the recipes are incredible. And she sort of sets up fantasy dinner parties at different places she's oh, visited with that. her favorite recipes. So it, it's really fun. She said she never wanted to write a book, but she makes these beautiful leather-bound scrapbooks where she tears recipes, photographs, magazine stories, and sticks them together. And all of her friends who would come over and see them were like, you have to make this into something that's actually published. So uh, all of the proceeds are going to the Dita Blair Foundation for Disorders of the Brain. And She's a very impressive medical fundraiser for different causes that she gets very in the weeds about. And uh, she invited me and one of our engineers, Jen Nelson, to her home to chat about everything. Mm, excited to hear more. Dita, your living room is quieter than the Condé Nast recording studios. <laughs> this is where every podcast should be recorded. <laughs> well, first of all, I have never heard of that podcast. I've certainly never done one. <laughs> I didn't grow up in the computer age. No, I... I and yeah. I rather like quiet silence. But I know I'm missing things. You are and you aren't. I noticed that there is no dining room in this, in this that apartment. That used to be, and... Oh, wow. That is now it's transformed into... It's actually a square library, and I covered over where Danielle Romaldus did the architecture for it. Uh, covered over two windows, so oh, the room wow. would be square. It was just an idea of mine. You don't notice it because of so many things going on with the books. Mm -hmm. And we have lunch usually there when it's not covered by book stuff. Mm -hmm. I think I would offend the world if I were to say, I really don't like dining rooms. Is this the library where you keep the, the scrapbooks that inspired the book? These are the scrapbooks. These Oh, my God, they're gorgeous. Books. Your scrapbooks were, I mean, I noticed that you have, there's sort of recurring motifs throughout. I, I noticed the foyer, the wallpaper that's covered. Is that hand-painted or is it wallpaper? No, it's wallpaper. Is that repeated in your scrapbooks? I notice it's yes. in the book. My husband adored Venice. We both adored a swim and that kind of thing. 
And so we went to Venice every year and I collected Venetian, and they're also in Florence and in Milan, papers. Any proceeds from the book are going to the Dita Blair. Yes. What is that? Do you it's do? called the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain. You seem to be ahead of the curve on everything because now there is a renewed or a first focus nationally on mental health. But it ha- there hasn't been for a long time. Um, exactly. Does it feel like a relief to you that now this is becoming a focus or is it frustrating that it's taken so long? It has taken so long. Because your son Um, also suffered from... Yes, my son was bipolar. And we knew he was going to have mental illness problems when he was in prep school. And you watched and I use the word hopelessness he felt that about his life and um, my husband and my son were wonderfully close and we would both try to talk to him during a period where the depression had hit. And it was it was not to be, he was impenetrable mm. in terms of talking about it. And Manic stages were, you know, unexpected. We didn't always see all of those. Mm-hmm. As a family, we were sort of odd. I mean, my husband and I had lunch, unless one of us was traveling. Every day, really, out of a forty, of a fifty-three year wow. marriage. He would started, come home from wherever. Uh, it started with the embassy in Copenhagen. That was his first ambassadorship. Yeah. And he would come home. We'd got nine there. And In your ice blue Balenciaga. <laughs> <laughs> the bluebird. <laughs> and these lunches were practical. Filled with schedules and planning. Mm-hmm. Guest lists. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of entertaining. I read about your movie nights. In the movie nights were the best. Will you tell me a little bit about those? Well, both of us were movie addicts. Mm-hmm. A large part of courtship was spent going to the movies. He arranged for my birthday. Every He had some connections in the world of Hollywood. Be because my husband was very important in the campaigns of Adlai Stevenson. Mm-hmm. And um, Lauren Bacall had an enormous crush on 
Adlai Stevenson, and <laughs> it spread and spread. And then hmm. his friendship with Mary Lasker was another branch of the movie world. So he was able to get James Bond movies every year. <laughs> was this Sean Connery days? Sean Connery, the next one. Roger Moore? Roger Moore. If you could travel to Paris now for the couture shows, I know you used to go twice a year, would you still go or are you wearing less, are you dressing up less these days? I'm dressing up less and I have no problem wearing clothes I've had for many, many, many years. And um, yes, the more glamorous evening dresses have been given for the most part to the Met and other museum Chicago history. Do you ever regret that? Is there ever... Oh yes, there are definite <laughs> regrets. Definite. Because no one's wearing them at the museums. Yeah. But I had to feel I can't live without it. Mm. And I had to feel be happy wearing it for eight years, ten years. They're four Chanel suits that when I start going to some book party lunches, mm -hmm. they will come out of the closet. And I, I didn't buy a lot, maybe two things a season. Mm -hmm. And I had done it for so long, I had what they called a pre-dejeune fee. <laughs> <laughs> and that started when I first started. A price of a young girl. Do you still follow fashion the way you, you once did? I mean, do you look at photographs of the shows every season or? I look at the videos of the couture. Balenciaga is not quite what it was. It's different. Yes. <laughs> I've seen some things that were great and things that I think Balenciaga would be horrified by. <laughs> but I think it's imaginative. Well, this was a treat to speak to you. you I loved meeting you both. It was such a treat to talk to Dita, and I found it amazing that she has given a lot of the formal gowns she used to wear to the Met and other museums. Oh, yeah, that's right. I've heard that she has some in the Met, and I'm actually going to take a look at one next week. I think it might be one of hers. It's a couture. Oh, in the upcoming in yes. the Karl Lagerfeld exhibit. Yes, it's ah. a Chanel piece from the 90s. Wow. Couture. That's it for this episode of The Run-Through. Thanks for listening. The Run-Through of Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg and Chelsea Daniel. It's engineered by Jake Loomis and Gabe Kiroga and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you next week. Bye. Hey, listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up to date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.